Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 721st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is teaching people of all backgrounds about sustainably growing food. We're talking with Mike Smith about a demonstration organic farm. Mike manages day-to-day farm operations, including planning and preparing materials for the cropping season of the Guelph Center for Urban Organic Farming, a one hectare, that's 2.47 acres, learning and research facility within the Department of Agriculture at the University of Guelph. He works with stakeholders, recruits staff, supervises interns and volunteers, and plays a key role in enhancing the educational and outreach activities. Mike received his BA in political science with a focus in agriculture policy from McMaster University and postgraduate certificate in project management from the University of Toronto. His education and experience give him a solid background in organic vegetable production from planting to post-harvest activities, which he is using to impact the community. Welcome to the show today, Mike. Are you ready to rock? I sure am. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure, absolutely. So way back when, as you indicated, I went to University of McMaster where I studied political science. In my first year, I started learning a little bit about agricultural policy. And from there, I looked for a summer job. And initially, I looked at maybe tree planting. However, some of the waivers they were asking me to sign made me a little hesitant. And a colleague of mine was working on an organic farm and said, hey, why don't you work over here? And so I ended up working on an organic farm for the summer and ended up delaying going back to school to finish the season, at which point I really started to focus my political science degree into looking at agricultural policy, where I would then work on organic farms across Canada, in Quebec, British Columbia, and Ontario, to understand how policy impacted organic farmers on the ground. In doing so, I worked in the not-for-profit sector for a little while after my degree. Um, During the recession, the financial crisis of 2007-8, it was difficult to find work as a recent grad. And so a colleague of mine who I worked on another organic farm with, the two of us started a small little farm operation. It didn't last too long. It was our first real experience taking the reins, making our own mistakes. 
And while we delivered on what the produce that we were supposed to, it was, it was a challenging season. From there, I worked at the Ignatius Jesuit Center here at the city of Guelph, which originally was a seminary to teach men to become priests. It's a 650 acre property here in Guelph, but about half of it's agricultural. The other half is naturalized space. And as that was the original place I went to on that first agricultural experience, I came in at that level in 2010 as a manager where I co-managed vegetable production and ran our practices and principles of organic agriculture program, where I taught probably around over the course of a decade, 70 young people that I mentored from the beginning to the end of the season, teaching them how to grow crops organically on about 25 acres and showed them how to run a small farm business. So yeah, that's my broad strokes and then leveraging (laughs) all those growing seasons and working with all those people sliding into the University of Guelph at the Guelph Center for Urban Organic Farming seemed like a natural fit. Wow. And why is urban organic farming important? The urban environment is where most of the people are. Right now, with the way our agricultural systems are mostly set up, it's big, large farms on big, large acreages producing a handful of crops, and that all gets moved to the city. I found over the years, whether it's the volunteers I've worked with or the people that I've mentored or just community members, whether or not it's at a farmer's market table or people that are coming for direct sales, a lot of people, once they start to get their hands dirty a little bit, maybe start to understand where their food comes from, It opens their eyes, I find, a little bit. It changes their world in terms of how they not just look at their food, but how their food is part of so many other systems, whether it's economic systems, the environment that they personally live in and grow in. And so I found, for me, that urban aspect really helps connect a lot of those other issues. As my degree started in political science, a lot of those social issues and environmental issues that were important to me, I found that whether you or I disagree about a particular policy or a particular issue, we all need to eat. And so getting together (laughs) around a table or just talking about food, it's a great opportunity to start a conversation because we all have that in common. And if we all have the idea of wanting to eat good, healthy food as a common point, then it's a lot easier to have, say, more difficult conversations down the road. But at least it's a common frame that we all have. That's where I'm coming from. The common frame is that we all eat. We all eat, no matter what you believe in or what language you speak, we all got to eat. And working yeah. with people who de- who speak different languages is always something I enjoy because people come from different cultural backgrounds and eat different foods. And I learn about those cultures and those different foods by all those touch points, all those interactions mm-hmm. over the years. One would not necessarily connect a degree in poli science with food and growing food. Tell me about that. The one line I used to say was, in politics, there's a lot of BS. And in agriculture, you use that BS for a productive purpose. But seriously, it's it was often about that policy. I find that for me, policy understanding the rules of the game, why we structure our systems the way we do as a society, I think is important to, to push us one direction or another, whether it's on a very local scale or a much larger scale, whether or not we're talking a provincial or a national or an international context. Over the years, I felt that when we look at, if we can change something at the local level, whether it's a policy, we're creating new systems or at least complementary systems that found way back when I thought, hey, if I work at this by helping to build alternative systems and alternative policies that take, let's call it the triple bottom line, the economic, the environmental, the socioeconomic indicators, Mm -hmm. not just a financial level, then Hopefully, as an organization or as a business, you'll be more sustainable, especially when pushed into whether it's a crisis or whether or not it's just a difficult position. 
And most people found, at least farmers during the COVID pandemic, a lot of farmers found their demand was off the chart. As all of a sudden, the idea of the local became much more prominent in people's mind of how do I feed myself if a lot of these systems and structures we've depended on for so many years are buckling. Not only are they buckling, but they're breaking down. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And this is an interesting conversation for me. About 15 years ago, I designed my local food economy model. Mm -hmm. And the local food economy model has seven parts to it. It's got local food, local seeds, creating farmers. And one of the, one of the segments in this local food economy model is policy. And I have always been a bottom-up guy. I like to go out and integrate myself in the neighborhoods and get community gardens going and get people growing food in their backyard. So that's a bottom-up approach. Policy is a top-down approach. It's working with the government and making headway so that we can actually thread growing food into our culture. I'm going to use this word lightly, legally, because there are places on the planet, there are places in the United States, and I'm sure in Canada, where it's illegal to grow food in your yard. Depending and, on your jurisdiction, there are certain municipalities that do have some constraints. Yeah, and HOAs. So the policy piece and poli-sci, this is a really important piece, is it not? I think so. And that's why over the years, well, the larger issues of, say, national or provincial jurisdiction get a lot of more media play. I find the local issues at your local city council, at least in this part of the world, uh, get a little bit more of my attention because those are the issues that a lot of people in our community see. They're the ones who are making decisions about development and zoning and all those kind of things. Yeah. And I come from a similar place in terms of that bottom-up approach in terms of on-the-ground, hands-on, and really like at the end of the day, turning back across a field and seeing what I accomplished in the course of the day, where if yeah. you're on the computer and you're talking emails and policy and stuff, it's a little bit more in your head and it's a little bit out there and it's a little bit harder to see how you've moved that issue forward. That being said, what got me interested way back when was seeing these decision makers are the ones that are making big decisions that impact huge amounts of people and huge amounts of farms. Oh, yes. In terms of where do you get your bang for your buck? And that's why initially I thought the policy side was probably since it impacted a larger area and a larger number of people, that's maybe where to go. And in practice, I've moved more on the bottom up approach, but I've never forgotten that those folks that are in that decision-making power, we mm -hmm. can't ignore them. But at the same time, knowing where strategically I can put my energy on what issues resonate with my community to actually put my energy and to advocate and organize around a particular issue. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. Really important work. Yeah, thanks. I am quite sure that not many people have heard of Guelph or where it is. So can you tell me, give us an idea of where you're at and where the farm's at? Absolutely. So Guelph is a small city in southwestern Ontario. So for anyone who knows Canada, it is about an hour away from Toronto, which I think is probably the biggest city that most people around the world are aware of. So we are located at the University of Guelph, which is in the heart of the city, really just outside of the downtown. The farm is a one hectare, so about a two and a half acre property within the campus. It's part of the campus, we're not separate, but it's in the corner of the Guelph Arboretum, which is a botanical gardens actually oh, located nice. at the university. I've heard of that space. In fact, I think I had somebody else on the podcast in one of my 700 or so episodes that talked about the Guelph Botanical Garden. 
It's entirely possible. Yeah, it's been around for I don't know how many decades. It's really a rich source of biodiversity. It's a demonstration space as well, where there's various different plants that are growing in different ways. It's also a genetic gene bank for a lot of woody species. And so just on the other side of the tree line from the farm, we'll have a space of where there are dozens of, say, magnolia trees of different genetics. So that way in the future, if a particular grower or someone is having an issue, we have a solid gene bank of really rich genetics as you have all these species or all these, I'd say, uh, individuals within a species that are all Mm -hmm. cross-pollinating on a regular basis to keep that gene pool really solid. And they do that with a number of different woody species, which in terms of an urban organic farm, a unique constraint I have is that I'm not allowed to grow woody species unless I get the genetics through the arboretum. Um, As if I bring in, say, an apple tree and they have apples not far away, I could risk contaminating that gene pool with a virus or a disease that I would have been Mm. reported. So that's Mm -hmm. just not that I'm growing in two and a half acres. There's not a lot of woody species I'm bringing in, but it is something that is a unique constraint within my particular environment. Interesting. And what do you grow on two and a half acres? Right now we do a mix of a lot of different vegetables. I'd say your classic arugula through zucchini. Having grown in most of my experience, I worked within what the community shared agriculture model, like Mm -hmm. a food box program. And I found that having a lot of diversity in terms of the crops that you're growing is a good crop insurance. Often working in an institution or at a not-for-profit organization, we don't qualify for crop insurance here in Canada. And so having that diversity was the crop insurance. I would take money from clients at the beginning of the year doing a food box program before in which they would give me money up front and I would need to have vegetables. And I didn't know if it was going to be a wet year or a dry year or a cold year. And as we're finding more interesting weather patterns develop in recent years, sometimes <laughs> you get some combination of those in a given year. And so yeah. at the Guelph Center for Urban Organic Farming, I grow up being a demonstration site. I grow a lot of different vegetables. I also grow some fruits some raspberries some strawberries. Also this past year, for example, I had a trellis of what we called unusual vining crops. So they're things that for demonstration purposes, not a lot of them, I would say, are particularly delicious, but they're unique. So we had things like cucamelons and jelly melons and birdhouse gourds, things that maybe if you were in town and you had a fence and you wanted to grow something on it and be a little bit unique, Mm -hmm. grow some of these more uh, unusual things just to tickle the fancy. Nice. And Guelph is near Toronto. And I literally, just before we started this call, got a text from my buddy, Jason, who lives in Guelph. And he said, you guys got three inches of snow. So I'm wondering if you are actually growing food right now. So you are correct. Your sources are correct. We did get about three inches of snow just in the last couple of days. We did have an unusually warm November. I'll say it in Celsius. I can't do the conversion in my head. We had about 16 degrees last week. And right now my overnight low tonight is minus nine, feels like minus 16. So we've had a big swing in the last week. Um, typically in November, I would say the last two weeks of November is mostly when you start winding things down in this mm-hmm. part of Ontario in terms of your growing season as I've had some Novembers where I'm still harvesting cauliflower out in the field, but I have other Novembers where the soil has frozen so much that trying to dig out potatoes, your giant <laughs> frozen chunks of soil and then punching out the potatoes and are left with Swiss cheese frozen soil blocks. Mm. So right now at the Guelph Center for Urban Organic Farming, we don't have very much left. I have some garlic and that's really about it. That's that's still available. The food that we do grow on campus is pretty much eaten on campus. And so we've developed a model where we sell with some great partners in the hospitality service department. So they're responsible for pretty much, let's say 95% of all food distribution on the campus. Mm -hmm. I know 
a lot of campuses will have a third party take care of that type of service, but Guelph is known for having really good food. And so by partnering with hospitality services, we are able to harvest food, wash the food, and they show up with a truck whenever we call within reason, obviously, and they take it away. And then it gets sent to one of their various distribution points. So one of the, whether it's one of the residence cafeterias or whether it's in more of the university center with their various restaurants there. So you're actually growing food for the restaurants on campus. Wow. Now you mentioned a box program. Are you also doing like a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture box program? Um, not at present. That has been more by background. So that that experience has leveraged some of the decision-making in terms of how I distribute and how I package and how I grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do also have for a number of weeks in the fall, a sliding scale market on campus. So we go oh. right into the university center and we partner with a number of other community and campus organizations like our friends at the sustainability office and the seed where we bring the food to students and we have a sliding scale between a wholesale and a retail price. And we say, you've picked X, Y, and Z your price is between 10 and $15. What are you wishing to, what do you want to pay today? And so based on the person's need or desire or want, they get to pick. Someone came up to me the other day at market and said, I think you're doing the capitalism thing wrong. And because that's not why we're doing it. It's not for the capitalism. We could make more money if we sold it at rate to everybody. But part of our mandate is to support the campus and the student community, which is why we also donate a good percentage of our crops to the campus food bank. We have a a food bank for students on campus. And so we donate a number of things to them as well. So that way, one way or another, people are going to be getting our food. Right. You're growing a lot of food if it's going to all these places. How much are, are you growing? Uh, as I've only been in this position for a couple of years, last year I got thrown in at the end of May and they were figuring it out. And so this year was great <laughs> to actually have a chance to actually make a crop plan. And I've not tabulated my data yet, but we're growing thousands of pounds of food easily on, on, on the acreage that we have. Since some of our infrastructure is still in need of some repair, we just repaired a couple of our unheated hoop houses this year in which we did a lot of tomatoes, basil, cucumbers to have a little bit of that season extension, but also the protection that some of those crops can benefit yeah. from. Yeah, let's talk about that season extension and hoop houses. Tell me about that. Why are they important? In a variable climate, it's nice to have a little bit more control over how much, say, moisture a particular crop gets. So a number of years prior to me starting there, they received a grant for a research project on, on site. And so we have six unheated hoop houses, which mm-hmm. is yeah, an unheated greenhouse on campus there. Uh, And then we have one larger hoop house that is not heated, but has a little bit of automation in terms of ventilation that we use for our seedlings in the early part of the season. Tell Um, us what a hoop house is. I use the word hoop house. Some people call it a cold frame. Some people just call it an unheated greenhouse. Uh It's pretty much, there are steel ribs that are like half, I guess they'd be like a half circle rather than a traditional greenhouse shape, perhaps, in which is covered by one or two layers of plastic we usually call it poly here, and in, we usually describe it as a six mil or an eight mil in terms of the density, how thick that mm-hmm. plastic is. That's um, pretty some thick. of them, you might enforce air between those layers to add an extra cushion. And the purpose of using these things is a couple. One, you get to have a little bit more control over your environment, which helps mm-hmm. some of, let's say, your peaks and valleys in terms of your weather in a given year. It's also acts as a physical barrier to stop some pests from actually getting to your crops. So in ours, by having plastic on, let's say, 95% of the area, the square footage of the building, we also have on our roll-up sides insect netting to help stop insects. There's ventilation there. It stops the cucumber beetles or what have you from actually getting in. It helps. (laughs) It helps. Yeah, that definitely helps. And season extension. 
just say a little bit about that. Yeah, in where we are, we our last frost date is probably around like the middle of May, and our last and our first frost date, I should say, is usually I would say middle of October. So by using things like hoop houses, the other thing we'll use is floating row covers, which is a big white sheet for anyone unfamiliar with it that lets through about eighty percent of light and moisture, and that. And some of those also, depending on the grade that you purchase, can add an extra five degree insulation, Celsius, five degree Celsius insulation. And that way you can plant things either earlier in the season or later in the season without some of those risks of frost damaging your crops, have them grow a little bit longer. Uh, We aren't doing a lot of season extension at the moment, mostly because as some of our infrastructure is still in needs of repair, we are leveraging what we can with what we have with the hope that in the coming years, when we finish additional infrastructure improvements, that we'll have more capacity to do some of that. So we can push that season a little bit longer and make that food available for student, the student population also a little bit longer. Awesome. So you're dealing with the public a lot, either students or people coming in on campus. What are some of the common things that you hear from visitors that aren't familiar with organic farming? Yeah, common things. I would say a lot of, some people are curious about Hey, what are, what is this thing growing here? So, so some of it is pretty, I would say, entry level kind of questions because we're part of, we are located at the University of Guelph. We're within the Guelph Arboretum. You have people, like people could be walking there right now for all I know. There's no fencing locking people out. It's so sometimes people are just going for a walk and they stumble upon it. Other times students are interested and they come out and want to see what's going on. With the basic questions of what is this? What's going on here? What do you do here? Questions where other people will come and I'll have more specific questions of, hey, I have a some tomatoes at home. How do you prevent them from growing, getting so wild on me? Or... I've tried growing eggplant before, but the leaves all got eaten by something. Do you know what that could be? And so depending on those questions, it's often a back and forth. I usually need a little bit more information than my plant didn't do good. What happened? (laughs) Sometimes is they don't have anything more than that. So it requires a little bit more of a conversation. Given who I am and what I do in the world, I get a lot of emails from people that's that's exactly that. Hey, something's eating my yada, yada, yada. What is it? A good (laughs) question. I need more data. Absolutely. Um, So this is absolutely a passion project for you. I can tell from our conversation. And there are things that happen for us on a day-to-day basis for me, and I'm sure for you, where you're interacting with somebody and it strikes you, this is why I do what I do. Do you have any epics like that? Sure. Just the other day, I was I was working in the field and we had volunteers come out because it was the end of the season. I did a big call out. We had a lot of root crops. So we had a lot of carrots and beets that mm-hmm. we needed to pull up. As you said, we got three inches of snow out here. I didn't really feel like doing it in the snow. Uh, <laughs> and since we had some gorgeous time, I did a big call out to say, hey, anyone, come on out. You can take some carrots home, but just we need help getting them out of the ground. And um, as we're doing this and I'm explaining some of the tools that we're using and why we're doing it the way we are and some of the steps, this one woman came, uh, stopped me and said, you know what? Thank you for not making me feel dumb for not knowing this. And I'm like, of course, like I didn't know this at one point in my life. I had to learn this. You were at a different stage of your life than I am. I'm not going to make you feel bad for not knowing a thing. My sister sometimes has the expression that she uses. There are no stupid questions. They're just stupid people that don't ask questions. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There you go. For me, that's the kind of thing that really, you know, pushes me a little bit to, to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. On my urban farm, when I did tours, that was a big part of the reason is to open people's eyes up to how things grow. I've been growing food for almost 50 years now, but 
before I planted and grew broccoli, I didn't know how it grew. I didn't know what it looked like. And so it's one great big exploration. And isn't it fun dealing with the public doing that? Absolutely. And I find within the community of growers around me, it's a very collaborative relationship. We see each other often more as collaborators than competitors, even though yeah. we may be competing in a particular market to sell the same person some carrots. We can learn so much and get so much from each other when we collaborate. Yes, absolutely. You can see how excited I'm getting on video right now. And I've said for years that competition is what's killing this planet. We're competing the planet to death. We've got to cooperate. And people used to say to me in Phoenix, what happens when there's three or four farmers in an area and there's competition? And I would say things like, are we feeding everybody locally yet? When we're feeding everybody locally, we might have some competition. But in the Phoenix area, we had 4.7 million people that it's going to be a while. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of the farmers I know will, years ago, I traded crops with a colleague of mine. He had no rain and I had way too much. And we were only within about 100 kilometers of each other. And at one point we just said, you know what? Let's just trade. Our clients need, want some diversity. So no money exchanged hands. It's, I got a lot of this. You got a lot of that. Let's just trade. And that worked so well because the people who were in our separate markets got more diversity. They got, I think it was spinach and tomatoes that we traded. And while, so our clients were much happier for it. We had got rid of some of the excess that we were trying to push somewhere that we were trying to find a market for because we both had bounties of these things that we were trying yeah. to, to get rid of. And so it was a great experience of where we did that. Do you have fun every day? I try to. I try to tell my staff and my summer students, everyone who comes out, that part of it is if we're going to be having a good time while we're doing this, it makes getting through physically the work, those hot days or those wet days mm -hmm. or those cold days, so much easier if we can do it with a smile on our face. Yeah. And I never want getting someone hurt because they decide they were trying to push themselves too hard, picking kohlrabi or carrots or beets or something. It's not worth it. And yeah, in terms of a leadership style, I treat everybody with respect every day. And I try to go in with a smile and yeah. things happen that don't always keep that smile on yeah. all the time. But you turn the page with a new day. Uh, amen to that, man. I do a fruit tree education program in Phoenix, and then people can buy fruit trees from us. And we have a pop-up nursery that's open about 20 days a year for people to come and get their fruit trees that they ordered from us. And at the beginning of every morning, we have two rules and we review it all the time. First of all, be safe. Safety's first. Second is be happy, have fun. We're dealing with food and food systems here. It should be fun, man. Absolutely. And I've heard different studies that they've done in different places about all sorts of different things. Like, and I've heard it called the fun theory, that if you make something more fun, you can encourage behavior in a positive way. Uh, I think one of those examples was just a small anecdote was Please. Uh, somewhere in Europe where they wanted more people to take the stairs than the escalator out of a subway, out of a metro. And so they turned the stairs into piano keys. And so every time they stepped on it, it would make a sound. Oh, I've heard this. And so all of a sudden, overnight, everyone's like, I want to take the stairs, which 40 stairs or something for people that are sitting around all day. It's good extra exercise. And they found that, wow, look at this. You just change the motivation a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And I always take the stairs if I have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> I think my farmer. odd exception might be at an airport, but that's about uh, my, that happens so rarely. I don't know if it's even worth mentioning. <laughs> there you go. So you're in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. And... What do you have to offer people that can't come to Guelph? 
Right now, we are, as I were rebuilding our systems, I'm posting regularly on Instagram. I'm not much of a social media guy, but that's how I'm starting to share visually and through video what's happening at the farm. And so this past winter, I've been taking some, I've been putting together some different things to try to have next year more opportunities for that, whether or not it's just little one-on-one-on-ones on how to do X, Y, and Z depending on where you were, are in the world, take that with a grain of salt, because some of those details may depend on your region. Because uh, I have heard some people direct seeding tomatoes. That's something I can't get away with here. Oh, uh, direct seeding tomatoes means you take the seed and you put them in the ground rather than directly put it where right? it's going to live forever versus yeah. where we are here up in the north where you have to start it in a greenhouse. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we'll be doing a little bit of that over the course of the coming season as we try to yeah make it a little bit more accessible. Great. What's your Instagram? Feed. So we are at GCUOF. So that's the Guelph Center for Urban Organic Farming, the acronym GCUOF underscore U of G. So that's the University of Guelph. Cool. In the world of the internet, I'm sure if you just do a look up, you'll find it pretty easy. Right. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Sure. I don't know. Right off the bat, I have failed a lot of times in my life. I'll just put that on the record. Excellent. Um, As I tell my summer students regularly and the staff that I've managed over the years is you're absolutely allowed to fail. Just please fail small first. (laughs) (laughs) When I used to manage a large greenhouse operation, that's where all of a sudden, oh, you did a thing wrong. Hundreds of thousands of dollars where that error could trickle into. So let's on that scale, let's do that small. One particular example, I'll give you a couple. So one, I worked for an organization years ago in which they asked me to do something that I found, let's say, not honorable, maybe a little bit dubious on the ethicalness of it. And it was totally legal. It's common business practice. This is what we do. I personally didn't love that particular position I was put in. I was in a leadership position. I was supervising dozens of people in this role. And so while at that moment, I was the team player, I did what I was asked to do by that metric. I succeeded because I did the thing I was supposed to do, Mm -hmm. fill my responsibility. But to myself, I failed because I failed myself holding true to my own values. And for me, overcoming that was not just something that happened tomorrow. It was one of those things over time where it Mm -hmm. gave me pause about whether or not this is an organization or a company I want to be working for, because I know what's important to me and the values I hold. And to ultimately hold my values to myself as that is my integrity and my accountability to myself is the most important thing. And so over time, it was not a good fit. I left on good terms with everybody, but like for me, it was just not where I saw myself in the long term. Yeah. That's really important to speak to our own integrity and stay inside of our own integrity. Yeah. And sometimes you got to fail at that in order to really learn where your lines are and who you want to be and what you want to stand for as a person. Yeah. You said two, that was one. And then other stuff would be more like, I would say on the ground kind of stuff where one time I was unclear about expectations that I gave some of my staff and (laughs) they ended up overseeding, I think it was salary. I think it was salary. Anyway, years ago. And I put that on me. I was unclear with my expectations of what tray size I wanted to do. And part of that is over 17 years. I was probably close to 14 years at that point of doing this. I get farther and farther away from the first time I did a thing. 
Yeah. And obviously I wouldn't plant those in this tray size that they did because I thought that was ridiculous. I've been doing it one way for years and it was working out just fine. And then overseeding it, it was like, oh my gosh, there's like way 10 seeds per cell. That's insane. That's a tiny little thing. Right. And so we talked about it and we got them to be, okay, we need to thin this out. We, this is not too much. And they're like, what do you want to do with the extras? Cause we have a million extras. And I'm like, I really don't care. Like you can toss them or if you want to keep a couple, whatever. And so I come back later that day and it turns out, again, I was unclear with my expectations by saying, eh, I don't care. They then decided to plot them all, put them all on into much larger cell size containers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, now we have so many more. <laughs> I don't need this much. But by doing it, now we had it in a number of different tray sizes. And as we let some of those plants grow out, we could actually see side-by-side -side comparisons, which tray size actually did they do better in. I think I initially was doing them in 128s and they had planted, potted them up into 72s. And the 72s actually did a lot better. And I failed in my communication twice in a row, let the experiment continue. And then we learned something from it by saying, oh, okay, going forward, I think I'm going to change my tray size. We'll go with 72 and I'll make that clarity going forward a little bit clearer about seeds per cell or whatever the initial yeah. miscommunication was for how to deal with that. Yeah. I had to laugh when you started sharing about that because I, I had a, a person come by to the urban farm maybe five years ago and I gave them a bag of about half a pound of carrot seeds. And I said, do you know how to plant carrots? And it's, yeah, no problem. I got it covered. And a half a pound of carrot seeds is 100,000 seeds or something crazy like that, right? A lot of carrots. And he ended up planting all of them. And then, did he just and keep going row after row or did he just seed super heavy? Both. <laughs> and so I ended up with, I don't know, 15,000 carrots growing in my front yard in a small plot. So I, yeah, I had to laugh about that. Happy thinning. <laughs> and what do you consider your biggest success? I mean, part of me, I'd say, I think a lot of people like my young family, I thank my son, my family, obviously is very important to me and making sure that my son grows up to be a, a, a responsible, positive human being who's a, a, a positive contributor to his community is really important. And he's almost 10. So I, he's doing a pretty good job at that so far. I've mentored over 70 young people on teaching them as we called it, the practices and principles of organic agriculture over my life and on several different farms where I've been in that, that supervisory, that leadership role. And many of those folks have gone on to start their own either small farm businesses or small projects that, that keep them going on this track. And so looking back at some of those folks who are starting to have their own farms now, one of them is a plant breeder, the awards that they've won. I'm just so proud of them nice. for all they've done. And that's their hard work and their dedication, knowing that I at least often in their first experience, getting Planted their hands dirty, planting Planted for seeds. Seed. Yep. You never know what's going to fruit up and how that's going to grow <laughs> over time. So immensely proud of the work that all those folks have done. And some of the times they've learned, you know what, this isn't for me. And that is totally right. cool too, because so much of what we do, at least for me, I can see the parallels in how growing plants and growing food and the communication skills you teach, I teach folks that can translate to so many different parts of your life. Yeah. You've given a lot of people a limb up, but oh, boom, <laughs> I had to. What drives you? What's your big why? Oh, you might be able to guess from some of the things I've said. It's the connection with people. It's the connection with the natural world, with plants. Every time I'm out there under the sun, getting my hands dirty, it reminds me that I am just one of these creatures living on this crazy blue planet that we live on. It's that connection. 
with the natural world, the connection with people that really keeps me going back for more every year. Yeah, because this is the time of year, at least in this part of the world, where you reflect a little bit on the season that's just come and you try to start planning for the next season ahead. So it, I find that it really checks off a lot of my boxes in terms of what I find important. Nice. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So I'm not diagnosed as dyslexic, but I'm pretty sure I'm dyslexic. And uh -huh. so, or as they called in the 1980s, you suck at reading. So <laughs> I don't read a ton of books, but I did recently read by the gentleman, Andrew Meaford. It's a greenhouse and hoop house growers handbook on wow. how to grow different crops in protected cultures or protected structures. It gets really into the weeds in terms of specific details that work well or what doesn't work well or variables you need to consider. As most of my growing experience over the years has not been in protected cultures, I'd say only in the last maybe five years, I've focused more in, in that space. Yeah, this past year, I, I was reading that book a lot to try to try to help me not make some mistakes because I'm going to make some mistakes and hopefully learn from them, but hopefully preempt some of those mistakes by, by learning from others. Amen. And what final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? In my experience, I've seen a lot of people that have got their hands dirty and then are super excited to try it themselves. And over the moon, you should try it yourself because I think the most learning someone can do is by some of that education, whether formal or informal learning from others. Mm -hmm. By doing, I think, is really where you'll really take those lessons to heart. But my advice would be for anyone going beyond that to say, hey, I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to start my own project where you're actually having to invest, you're having to step up, whether or not you're taking out a loan or whether or not you're taking mm -hmm. from savings or whether or not you're taking time from other parts of your life and you're shifting, whether it's your family, your friends to focus on that project. Before you go all in, I would, my advice is to try to have an experience growing in a wet year and in a dry year, at least where I am in this part of the world, those two extremes, whether or not you're in a floody kind of space or a drought kind of space, it dramatically changes the work that you're going to be doing, needing to do every day. And it's also going to hit your yields in a big way. And so if you're really needing to make a buck at it, knowing, having that experience, maybe on someone else's dime, either working for someone or volunteering somewhere, even just to see how they plan their day differently based on those variables, I think is a really important one so that when everything's riding on it, you're, you don't get burned too hard. Yeah. Wow. That's great advice. That's great advice. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Mike. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. It's been great talking to you. Oh, right back at you, man. I feel kindred souls here. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. And how can our listeners get a hold of you? As I mentioned earlier, you can see us on Instagram at GCUOF underscore U of G. That's U O F G. But also, you can contact me on my email. Folks can do that at GCUOF. So that stands for the Guelph Center for Urban Organic Farming, G-C-U-O-F, at uoguelph.ca. Spell Guelph for us. Guelph is spelled G-U-E-L-P-H. Awesome. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Guelph. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.